Hey, Peace Nicks. Today's guest, Chelsea and Suzanne of the Sticky Eddie Podcast. That's Sticky with two eyes. Sticky Eddie Podcast. Uh, we had a great conversation about alcohol use disorder, about addiction, about the, all the problems in society that are around what I talk about in this podcast and other things with education and what are some of the ways we could fix these problems. It was great having them on as a guest. We uh, started with the conversation on their podcast, so I urge you to listen to the one I was on their podcast and check out their podcast, The Sticky Eddie Podcast. And um, let's go ahead and just dive on in. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs are menacing our society. Any thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, Thank you for joining us. This is the Peace on Drugs. On drugs. All right, so Chelsea, Suzanne, thank you for joining me on the Peace on Drugs podcast. Thanks for having us. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, and you guys host the uh, Sticky Eddie podcast that um, I was just a guest on your show. Yeah. So exciting. We were so lucky to have you. Thanks again. Um, thank you. Um, I want to uh, start by just explaining to my guests what your podcast is about and what got you started on it. Um, so I founded the podcast after losing my dad in December 2020. Uh, this is Chelsea speaking, by the way. <laughs> uh, my dad passed away from alcohol use disorder, unfortunately, and I knew nothing about addiction. So in the wake of losing him, I was just kind of floundering and feeling really bad and wanting to know more about the beast that is addiction and having a hard time in grief, et cetera. And I wanted to create a platform uh, to learn more and to help others do the same. Um, and about a year into the podcast, I decided that it would be really great to have a co-host. So I reached out to my dear friend, Suzanne, who had been a guest on the show a couple of times and everybody loved her. And uh, Suzanne joined me quite recently, but it's been an amazing journey so far. That's great. That's that's great. I've thought about doing the same thing, having somebody who's been a guest come be on my podcast, but it's hard to find somebody who really wants to spend the time to do it. So you're lucky there. Yeah, no, Suzanne's amazing. Suzanne, I'll let you explain your your journey and what brought you brought you to this. Oh, God. How long is this podcast now? <laughs> Um, well, you were kind enough to reach out to me and ask me to be a guest on your podcast when you were just doing it yourself, um, which I thought was amazing. Um, my journey, I am a recovering alcoholic, so I have a lot of experience with that. I'm also an adult child of alcoholics, so pretty much everybody in my family were alcoholics. Um, I also went to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor, so I do have that certification. Um, what really propelled my push to get out there and really help people more was I lost my husband, Bobby, uh, September 8th of 2020. And um, the previous year, Christmas Eve, I lost my dad. And then March of the 2021, I lost my mom. So it's been a really crazy um, whirlwind in between COVID. Um, I do a lot of work um, with grieving widows, um, particularly sober, because the night my husband passed, I had just gotten 10, 10 years, two months, and that was the first time in all that years of sobriety that I ever wanted to pick up a drink because I just wanted to disappear. But I knew if I went down that rabbit hole, I was never coming back. And um, I reached out to sober widow groups, grief groups, 
none around. So I started one and um, we actually still meet. It's, it gets few and far between our meetings now only because we're like the summer is busy and all that, but I'm hoping to get back into it. But I do a lot. Of, I do grief facilitation um, with widows in Long Island area. Um, but I pretty much do a lot of that's you know things between that and of course try and help people if they need help with alcoholism or you know substance abuse so a lot yeah what's the um there must be a pretty i don't know how high the percentage is of people that relapse when they when they suffer a trauma like the loss of a loved one because they the original addiction probably resulted from trauma so when they have a trauma again it makes it really hard for them to to abstain a hundred percent and what happened with me is every support group that I went into for widowhood, like the one thing I knew from the program and I went to, you know, a 12 step program is that I knew I couldn't do this grief journey alone. I needed support. Um, but all the widow groups and all the support groups that I looked for online in person, everybody was like, well, I'm just going to have a glass of wine. It was just not the mindset that I needed. And we all know that alcohol is a depressant. So it's probably the worst thing in the world to try and do. But that's one of the things that propelled me to become a drug and alcohol counselor was I wanted to get like I wanted to work with adolescents. And my professor once said to me, well, that's going to be the hardest age group to work with. But I wanted to get the kids before that that unfortunately might have suffered trauma, because like you said, trauma brings up a lot and you want to escape that trauma because you don't want to feel it's painful. So I wanted to work with adolescents because if they had like so many people, I believe you know, in my eyes, alcoholism is a disease. I know that you can get into a whole debate, whether it's hereditary, you know, genetic, environmental. But I think that what happens when we suffer a trauma is it, it, some people can go and have a drink or two and they're fine. Other people don't. So I wanted to get to people that they didn't have the predisposition to become an alcoholic or an addict and really give them the tools, the mental health tools, the, the you know, the self-care tools before that came into play. So for me, I knew because of my years of being an ACOA, years of being in the program, years of research, therapy, you name it, I did it. I knew that I could not do this alone. Could not do it alone. Yeah. Definitely helps when you have people you can relate to that have been through the same things or similar things. And just, then you feel like you're not alone and that really helps people grow. And I, I really, I do a podcast about drugs. And and the thing is, is I always try to tell people that doesn't mean that I'm saying everybody should be out there doing drugs. I think we need to have a a world where people could do them safer if they're going to choose to use them. But yes, if people can are, are using drugs to, to escape something and they can get, they can find a way to, to heal instead of escape. Yeah. That's a much yep. better, they're going to have a much happier life. And so I'm happy to and you're doing that, helping people. And, and unfortunately, there are people that can use substances, you know, substances like alcohol and drugs and be 100% okay. Right. But there are vast majority of people that can't and it becomes an addiction. And then, you know, you have your lives ruined or, you know, your family. It's it just, there needs to be balance and there needs to be support for your journey, whatever, whatever you're going through. To answer, to answer your question earlier, Aaron, because I had this, I I have this saved in my notes. um, But the statistic is between 40 and 60% of people who have struggled with addiction uh, will relapse after experiencing a a fresh, quote unquote, trauma. 
Yeah, see, it's it's, it's really high. It it's, it's high. It's, it's yeah. super high. Because yeah. because unfortunately, in in uh, and this goes back to grief and grief. Whether it's my like it happened to be my husband, and I'm not. And I have to talk to Chelsea with this. I'm not diminishing my mother or my father's death, but that's the natural order of life. Unfortunately, we're going to lose our grandparents. We're going to lose our dads, our moms, and all that other stuff. But to have like my husband was fifty. In fact, the day before he died, it was his birthday. Um, so we didn't expect to wake up the next morning and be planning a funeral. And I, I joke because my dark humor is coming out lately. Um, but it's uh, grief, the way we treat it. And this is what I learned when I was going through this journey in the Western civilization is so much different from everywhere else. Any other kind of religion, any other kind of, you know, you go overseas, death is not treated where, okay, you have three days. And if it's a distant relative, you only get one day, you mm -hmm. know, and you're expected to go back to normal. Like I was at my wake for my husband. My employers came because this was in the middle of COVID. And so, oh, by the way, you can come back to work on Monday. I'm like, yeah, no, not. My world just crashed, you know? Yeah. So I, for me, it was just, there was absolutely no support and grief. I feel like along with addiction and mental health is there's a stigma. Like you are meant to feel bad about grieving your person, whether it was your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, your husband, your wife, your child, you know, like, so I wanted to get out there that grief is okay. And it's normal. And you're like, today I was coming home from Mark and tears just strolled down my, my eyes because I listened to a song, you know, and the day was a good day, but yeah. it comes out of nowhere. And people are like, oh, you're not done with this yet. You're not over it. You're not moving on. But update, you know, so yeah, there definitely needs to be a lot more out there. Yeah, I think and it's just our, our world's become so fast paced with consumerism and, and people working 50 hours a week. We don't allow women who, you know, after giving birth to children, we don't give them paid time off. We definitely nope. are considerate for the fathers. I mean, there's talks about it. But uh, we're way behind other countries in this. And then, like you said, for grief, if you lose someone, well, when can you come back? Because we need you. It's like, can you be human at some point and just understand that people need time off of work for various reasons? I mean, calling in sick I, with COVID was a big issue. I, like, We actually had COVID and tried to call in and places would be like, well, we need you to play. Can you just like not sing and wear a mask? It's like, no, I'm also sick. Do you understand? It's not just I, I don't want to yeah. spread it, which is part of it, but I'm also very sick. And people don't want to hear it. They like. They want things to keep on moving. Yeah. I think that's true with also with addiction and mental health. Years ago, you know, if you had an addiction problem, you, you could stay an inpatient or in a rehab or a detox facility for months, years at a time. Now it's like you're out in like, you know, all right, six days. You know, maybe if you push it, you can get 30 days. But you can't, and mental health, if you can even find a, a facility to take you, they're pushing you in and pushing you out as fast as you can. And it's not enough time to get to the juice of it, to get to the bottom, to the deep inner soul. Like I'm only on my real, I say healing journey for two years now. And I got a lot more to go and I've been doing the work for years, yeah. you know? Yeah. It takes time. It really does. And I've been lucky that I've been able to kind of find my, my, the route myself 
without rehab, but I have friends, a friend that went, but he got lucky. He he had a sister that went to the rehab facility. So we got a huge discount. It was still $8,000. He had the money. See, this, wow. this is something a lot of people don't have. They're an alcoholic. A lot of people wouldn't have 8,000 laying around no. and, um, and also wouldn't have a discount. And it was $25,000 if he didn't have that discount. So he didn't have that kind of money. He wouldn't have been able to go, but he did go and he did get sober. Then a year later, he relapsed. He started getting bad with his alcohol again. He got to go back to rehab and now he's been sober for over a year. And um, he's doing really well. well so but he, he uses cannabis, though. That that, that works for him. But the, a lot of places would say if you use that, it's going to lead back to pot. But for him, he needed something, and cannabis works for him. And um, and he's he's a bartender too, so it's hard to be a bartender oh. and be around alcohol. But yeah. he makes so much money bartending, and he has no degrees, so it's not like he can go. Oh, I'll just go get a job at this at construction. I did that before, where I quit playing in bars and music, and I did construction. And when you get that paycheck for all the work you did, it's like, what is? It's just so hard to work in the real world without a degree. Well, that's that's the struggle I think that my dad in particular always had because, you know, the podcast is is named the Sticky Eddie podcast to represent my dad's stage name. He was a drummer and his stage name was Sticky um, with two eyes to represent the sticks. But that was... (laughs) things um that was the biggest thing for him you know he's a drummer he's in clubs all of the time he's you know has to be charismatic and he has to be able to schmooze with people and deal with people and um unfortunately it just starts to go hand in hand and you know I mean my dad was 69 when he passed away so he's been he was a drummer from I guess like nine years old and so all your life you're spending in this environment and whether you like it or not, you know, I mean, my dad had a lot of other underlying, I think, mental health issues that weren't addressed or maybe not even mental health issues, but just um, facets of his personality that weren't supported accurate or adequately because of his generation. Um And so it was just this social lubricant that he needed all of the time which was so funny to me because when he was sober, his personality was just, he was literally the best person on the planet, you know? So I just never understood why people need to lean so heavily on it. But um, what you were just saying really kind of piqued my ears because I'm loving what I'm seeing as far as harm reduction lately. And I appreciate the fact that your friend realizes like alcohol is going to be his downfall but he might not necessarily be prepared to lead a productive life without anything. He might just not be physically able to. Mm -hmm. And I think more people need to start accepting that, that that's okay for some people. And if, and if you need that, if he needs weed instead of alcohol, and that's, what's going to save his life eventually, then we need to start finding ways to be okay with that and supportive of that. A hundred percent. And there's a weird thing where we have in this country where the idea of getting high on something for some people is just so insane. Like you, why wouldn't you want to be sober? And for some people uh, getting high isn't about losing reality. It's about finding somebody like for me, I'm a musician. I love smoking a little bit. Now I'm not one of the people that gets so high. Like, you know, there's, there's, there's a very different level between someone who sits and smokes a whole joint mm-hmm. back to back versus me where I take two hits and I'm pretty much good for the day, but it gets me, gets my day going. And, you know, I look at someone like my buddy, Will, who was on my podcast and talked about this stuff, you know, he, he was, alcohol was so addicting that he would wake up. I, I went to stay at his house. He would wake up 
and pour a big glass of vodka and Gatorade and chug it to go back to sleep because mm. he was waking up shaking. And then when he quit cold turkey, he locked himself in a hotel room and almost died. He got so bad. And then luckily they called the cops on him because it was time to check out. And he started seizing Jesus in the hospital. Christ. So for someone like yeah, him, alcohol is ex- ex- extremely dangerous for him to do. And when he went back, it was just a beer here or there. That's how it starts. And then a beer here or there led to a shot here or there. All of a sudden, he's back to drinking the vodka and Gatorades in the morning. So for some people, alcohol is extremely dangerous. Actually, I should say this. I just listened to the Huberman Lab podcast about alcohol. Alcohol is actually extremely dangerous for everyone. There's no mm-hmm. safe amount of alcohol to drink. If you enjoy it, you have to understand that it's got horrible negative uh uh, health effects for causes cancer just as bad as cigarettes they don't tell you that everybody knows cigarettes cause cancer how many people know that alcohol causes cancer just as badly and alcohol has all all kinds of other issues that it causes so if you drink you need to know this is not a safe thing you're doing but if you enjoy it and it gets you through your day and you convince yourself of that as i do i do convince myself that hey me and my wife enjoy drinks at the end of the day but i am trying to cut back tremendously because it is a very dangerous drug I listened to part of that podcast because they were explaining how not even just alcoholics, but people that have like a weekend drink, you know, and go out drinking and binging or whatever, the, the effects. Now I know this anyway, but I'm glad that it's getting out there more and more because alcohol, forget about cancer. It destroys your whole entire body. Like you could have a heroin junkie that gets clean inside is okay. Alcoholics get, you know, sober awesome great they stop the damage they're doing to their body but the damage that's been done for the years of drinking is there your pancreas your kidneys your liver your heart your blood everything it just really is not a good substance to put in you and we did a whole podcast on it about you know how they glorify the alcohol industry how they push it and how they make it seem like it's like it it even gets me sometimes because i've gotten into like a source to buy stuff and i'm like damn when i was drinking they didn't have all this good shit out now now i want to be able to drink and i can't you know but i think that the main thing with any kind of addictions is it has to be multifaceted every area has to be covered not just the alcoholism but you know is mental health and alcoholism go so together there's so much comorbidity in that that they don't treat the, the the mental illness along with the alcoholism. And then that's what leads to relapses. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. plus the fact that an alcoholic's mind is crazy because, you know, you like my dad relapsed 27 years after being sober because, you know, your mind goes, well, maybe I'm, I'm good. Really alcoholic problem. I could do it. You know, so I'm yeah. going to have a beer. And one beer leads into two. And then, you know, we all know that alcoholism is progressive. So before you know it, by the end of the week, he's down in his SoCo and handles of that. And it's, it's, we're allowed to curse, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Okay. It's the ultimate <laughs> mind fuck. It's just like when you have a mental health patient that's a bipolar person and they get treated for the medication. And the number one reason for people with bipolar that have issues is because once they start to feel good, they said, I don't need this fucking medicine no more. So I'm going to stop taking it. So it's an endless cycle. So -hmm. there has to be a multifaceted approach to treating people along with prevention. And I I believe prevention really is starting now with what the effects of alcohol is doing internally. Not yeah. and, and and not only that, but it, I think it's the same podcast that human human, human. lab or whatever. Yeah. Um, the mind, you know, what it does to your neur- you know, your neurons, your neurotransmitters, yeah. everything inside of it. Yeah, and they don't so- glorify that because um, 
I would say she said that some, some of that neurodegeneration will actually heal itself depending on how bad you of an alcoholic you've been. Some of it won't. But um, but but if you quit drinking for like two or three months, some of that'll start um fixing itself. And um and it's really that's one of the scariest things for me in alcohol is the idea that it's gonna it could lead to dementia faster and other kinds of things. And yeah, and um I just think that and also the so the most effects that are gonna happen immediately that you any alcoholic or somebody that even just went off drinking for a night will know is your base level of anxiety is higher than somebody who doesn't drink when yeah. you're not drinking. Yeah. And he said that somebody that drinks one to two drinks on a weekend, just one or two drinks, will have a higher base level throughout the rest of the week than somebody who didn't have any weeks. drinks. And when he said one or two and he said he even said i know that two might sound like a lot and i'm like like oh shit like two sounds like i haven't even started my my night yet so my night yet i know yeah it's so and i know i know so many people that the one thing that gets them is the anxiety they call they now they have a term for it uh anxiety Mm -hmm. you know instead of hangover it's not the feeling of complete death the next day because you drank yourself it's perpetuating and waiting for the anxiety to take effect. And when he said that, I was like, oh my God, like, yes, yes. And that's what's so great about getting it out there. Because I remember when I was in school, we had to do a lot of case studies and a lot of things. And alcohol is really the number one killer because most people do not go into the hospital and say, well, yeah, I had, you know, a pint of, I had a handle of Tito's every night for the last 20 years. That's why everything looks inside. Because again, it's a stigma, you know, oh, you're an alcoholic, you're a junkie. People don't want to go in and say, well, I drink because they get the looks. Oh, okay. Look, you're, you know, you're this or that. So it's the prevention to be able to go in and be honest with your doctors and not feel like this just big stigma against it, you know? Yeah. I love love that. I I just started doing this when I go to the doctor and it says, do you use any illegal drugs? I just start listing the stuff I do. And like, and most of it's just, you know, natural stuff like mushrooms. And, but I put it on there because the, it blows them away. Cause no one does that. Why would you, you don't need to tell them that, but I do. Cause I want to destigmatize it. Yeah. I use these drugs. I drink some time. You know, I tell them exactly how much I drink. Why lie to your doctor? I mean, this just doesn't. I'm... But you it's have so... to. Sorry, yeah. It's so common. And if they're treating you for a condition, they need to know what they're giving you is not going to interact with what you're taking. So it's like, it's so paramount. That's the biggest um, obstacle that I faced with my dad. And that is one thing that I, you know, I try, I work really hard on this. And Suzanne knows, you know, I'm constantly would have, could have shooting myself to death because there are so many things I would love to do differently by way of supporting him better, um, perhaps making him feel much less judged and all of that. You know, he had a really severe problem. And especially in the last couple of years of his life, he definitely, I saw a lot of permanent neurodegeneration, um, particularly in his handwriting. You know, his hands had like a permanent shake to them. And um, it's something that he always prided himself on being able to do like craft wording and stuff like that. And you know, he definitely started changing. And in the last year of his life, he had a very small stroke and I was very afraid that he was never going to be able to speak again. And his doctors, you know, we, we had to rush him to the ER. He was having very severe hallucinations. Um, and the doctor said to him, like, Mr. Crucy, if you take another drink, in within the rest of your life, if you continue to drink, your pancreas is going to explode. You are a ticking time bomb, quite literally. And, you know, they had to almost try to scare him straight 
And I could see, you know, you can always see there's a part of the person who's looking out at you and they desperately do want, they don't want this, you know, nobody wants to be trapped in the horror that is a severe addiction. They don't want to be in pain. That's, that's just what it is. They just don't want to be in pain. And um, that is one thing that I am desperately trying to fight for is better support for people who are in pain and cannot articulate themselves in any other way. They just know that they need to find something to numb themselves from it. Yeah, it's it's really sad. And, and I'm sorry you had to go through that. I, you know, I have friends too that are a friend that's been in the hospital with liver, um, uh, whatever they call it, uh, cirrhosis. And, uh, yeah. he, well, it's something that wasn't necessarily cirrhosis. It was something with his liver, but it had to do with drinking, but also had to do with, I believe, um, what is it? Hepatitis from when he was using heroin. So that, cause that also can come back in this. Uh, yes. Yeah. But he was basically told you can't drink anymore. And then he, and then he started drinking again, ended up in the hospital a second time. And then a third time he was in a coma and was in there for a month. And now he's back out and I hear he's drinking again. And it's like, that's just how dangerous this drug is. This is a drug that you're not like, we know it'll kill you over time, but when you know that you have like, weeks to live, if you keep doing it and you keep doing it, like it's just crazy. When I think about other drugs that we've outlawed people that were taking to jail for long periods of time for possessing cannabis, when we have alcohol promoted, advertised everywhere, you go to your grocery store, there's huge signs with Budweiser and the flags and the football teams. This is the drug to do. It's like, this is the worst drug that you could pick for your recreational drug. And it's the only one that's, that actually is pretty heavy intoxicant that's legal. And yeah, and, that, and there's can- money to be made there. And there's money to be made in cannabis. Now that people are realizing that, they're starting to legalize in different states, different ways. Um, I, I think, though, that the idea that you can't grow it yourself if you have a medical card, like here, like that's ridiculous. But again, they want to make money on it. That's the only reason yeah, they legalize it's 100%. it. 100%. It comes down to the money and it comes down to what the government, you know, what we're gonna, they're going to get from it. Yeah. And I know, I, I know somebody very, very close to me that was literally told your liver like is shot. You have cirrhosis and the addiction was just so bad and he died from liver cancer. Like, you know, it's a shame. When you go to the gas station and you see that sticker on the pump that says contains 10% ethanol, you really have, I was staring so hard at this thing the other day while I was pumping my gas. Cause I'm like, I literally might as well, if if I'm drinking, turn this nozzle around and just pour this down my throat. No, obviously, (laughs) but it's no, no, no. I'm not quite, I'm not at that level yet. I mean, you know, I have my issues, but no, but I'm thinking to myself, like, this is what people are pouring down their throats, essentially, when they go to the liquor store, what you're drinking is straight poison. It has ethanol in it. You know, like these are alcohol is ethanol and ethanol. And see, ethanol is interesting. I was talking to Dr. Junkie about it, about the, um, I think he was explaining how human beings are one of the few animals that can even process alcohol. For most animals, it's just straight lethal. And because I think we were eating a lot of fermented fruits that were going bad because we were kind of scavengers, we actually genetically developed the ability to drink alcohol. And not everybody can. Some people don't have that ability and alcohol is extremely toxic to them. And those people are almost lucky. They can't drink. So uh, yeah. yeah, no, they definitely are. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I, I the alcohol is extremely toxic. It's just we're able to maintain it for a pretty good amount of time and drink it for a pretty good amount of time before it'll start really causing damage. But it inevitably will no matter who you are. And um I I just it's I really wish like 
for one, that we would wake up to this idea that alcohol, and also again, prohibition is my whole, my whole podcast is about the war on drugs. Prohibition doesn't work. I don't think we should outlaw alcohol, but I think we should treat it a lot differently. We shouldn't treat it as marketed commercials. You know how cigarettes we did? We took all the ads out of cigarettes, Truth. we put warning labels on it. Truth yeah. ads. We, you know, we, uh, what else they are no no TV ads allowed. You don't see cigarette signs at football games because we we try to take the sexiness out of it and take the marketing out of it and and a lot of less people smoke today. And, right. and we, we should do that with alcohol. No more advertising, no more making it look cool, no more sexy commercials of people on the beach with their bottles of coronas and having all the good yeah. fun. Maybe have the commercial, you know, someone crashing a car and you know, over into off a bridge or something. Like this is alcohol, yay. And because this stuff really happens with people and alcohol, but that's the reality of alcohol. If you see if you pass a bar at eleven in the morning, you see the same people sitting there at that bar because that's what they, yeah. how they start their day. And that's the sadness of alcoholism. It's not the people yeah, there are people partying on the beach having a great time. That's also part of it, but we're not seeing the whole picture through advertisement. No, and, and and they took away, like years ago when I went to school, we had the D.A.R.E. program, which at least taught about drug and alcohol. Yeah, but and, it wasn't effective. And, you know, the, then the no. med people came around and they turned, you know, at least they showed what drunk driving could do and the accidents and all that other stuff and everything yeah. like that. But I believe that that should be a major component in schools starting very, very young about alcohol, you know, alcohol and drugs and what it can be in true life and bring recovering people in, bring, you know, nurses in, bring people in and see, this is what ha- doctors, this is what happens, you know, and teach responsibility. Because like we, when we were talking about it on our podcast, you know, when, when you, when they show a commercial for gambling, especially now with the sports and football starting, it's always like, if you have a drug, you know, a gambling problem, please call every single commercial on alcohol, alcohol, there is nothing that says, no. you have, you know, you feel you have a problem. Like you said, everything is glorified to the tents, to the tents, you know, and it's just like, when, when do you draw the line? Like, where do you draw the line and say, all right, this has got to stop. But again, it's money for the, you know, the tax station on it. It's got to be a big money maker for the medical field and the insurance companies, because they're seeing so many patients from that and everything like that. So it's like everywhere else you go, again, if you go across the pond, you go into, they are taught how to drink responsibly, how to prevent, you know, instances of alcoholism and all this stuff. I don't think the the rates, I'm going to have to do that tonight. I'm going to research that. Be a good topic. The rates of alcoholism elsewhere other than here. I would imagine this might just be uh, my, I've been brainwashed, but I think in Ireland, it would be pretty high. Yeah, yeah. it is. It but, is. Uh, but I've heard, I've heard other countries, my buddy went to Amsterdam when he was young and they just got super, super stoned. As soon as they got there, were so high, they could hardly walk. And everybody immediately was like, Americans are here. You know, they're over, <laughs> yeah. overindulging Americans. 100% because you ask anybody from here where they want to go, they want to go that, that a pot smoke is Amsterdam, you know, Germany, you know, I'm sure yeah. Germany doesn't have a problem with it. And they're but, like, you know, their beers and stuff. What Aaron just said is a really, really, really good point. And I just want to expand on it for two seconds. Um, we have to, like Suzanne said, start educating kids at a much younger level. But what you just said was golden because if we approach things in a way less punitive manner, And if we start just understanding, like no one wants their kids to drink or do drugs, obviously. Unfortunately, it is something that is most likely going to happen. But if you take the judgment out of it, like I always tell my son, whatever you do, even if it's something bad, just tell me, I can never get mad at you for telling me the truth. 
I need to know the full story so that I can support you the best. And whatever happens from there happens, but just know that I will always have your back and you never have to fib. You never have to lie. And I think if we take that same approach, when we talk to the youth about drugs and alcohol and just say, you know, we're taking the judgment, we're taking the punishment out of it, but you need to know if you try this, this is what could happen. Mm-hmm. And you really want. And also too, I don't think it's a bad idea to start introducing Narcan training and other preventative measures in school as early as, you know, fourth or fifth grade before they enter middle school, you know, because especially with the introduction of fentanyl in everything except for freaking goldfish crackers these days, I mean, we really need to start empowering these kids at a younger age so that there's less of a desire to overindulge because definitely the day when is legal doesn't mean that I'm going to go sprinkle it on my Wheaties. Like, no, and also if heroin was legal, we wouldn't need Narcan as badly as we do because people could go to a doctor and get a dose that they would know what they were getting and it wouldn't kill them. It wouldn't be bad to have it on hand because somebody might overdose, but it would be right. so much less. Now we have fentanyl. Fentanyl wouldn't be the thing on the fentanyl. streets if, if it wasn't for prohibition. And that's the main reason we need Narcan so badly. And a lot of people don't even understand Narcan. I heard somebody saying, you know, yeah, we should have Narcan, but I mean, you don't want to just do this. You don't want people doing the stuff. I'm like, do you even understand what Narcan is? It doesn't get you high at all. Nobody's going to abuse a drug that doesn't have any effect <laughs> other than reversing the effects of an opioid. But people just, they, they hear Narcan, they think narcotic. Um, I, I, there's just so much misinformation, but that goes to what we're talking about, that we need to have honest conversations with our children. Yes, like the D.A.R.E. program was a dishonest conversation that once we realized I smoked pot and was like, well, that wasn't so bad. What else were they lying about? But like South Park had a great episode about it where they, they their parents uh-huh. hire these th- themselves from the future to come and, yes. and be like, oh, drugs really messed me up. And the kids realize they're lying. They're like, if you just would be honest, why don't you just talk to us honestly? Like what? And that's really what it is. And if you look at Portugal, what they're doing with their children, they've decriminalized and they have honest and they ask the kids, are you going to do drugs? And if the kids say yes, they go, OK, um, here's some stuff, you know, you might want to know. And why do you want to do it? And a lot of kids are like, no, I'm good. They've taken the sexiness and the, the, the you know, oh, I'm a you know, I'm a badass if I'm doing drugs. And I felt like that when I was in high school, like, yeah, I'm going to smoke pot. I'm going to come in smelling like pot, all yeah. eyes glazed. Oh, that's so cool. It's illegal. I'm breaking the law. Take all that out of it. Like, no, you're just a guy that got high before school and you're going to fail. Your a rebel. Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good luck in Spanish class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, I failed yeah, all it, those classes. How do, you, how do you counter that with that there are, like we've discussed in the beginning of the, 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 the conversations, there are people that can do that and be okay with it. But then you do have people that will become addicted to it. And then how do you structure a program to foster not, well, we've, that like, we, we've, you know? we've spent a trillion dollars arresting people and building prisons. If we would have spent all that money on mental health facilities and yeah. teachers and places where people could go who have problems, we would have a lot less people with these problems. I mean, like you, like you said, there's if you go to a rehab facility first, if you can afford it and get accepted, second, you're yeah. in and you're out. If we had a proper mental institution, also just not to really, it's not really changing the subjects, but we have people that were extreme mental conditions like bipolar, schizophrenia, they're hearing voices. Heroin seems to make them feel better. They like the heroin better than they like their antipsychotic medicine. So you have homeless schizophrenics with nowhere to go. These people are hearing voices. They they need a proper home that can treat them properly. They don't need to be in the streets. Yeah. Their families have abandoned them because they don't have the money or time or patience, a lot of them to, to handle somebody with this kind of mental affliction. So why are we not helping them? Why are we allowing them to live in cities made of tents? This is insanity. 
And now there's the drugs that they're using that they actually make them feel better that they're not allowed to use contain fentanyl. And now they're dying. dying <laughs> why, yeah. Why, yeah. Like I say, what are the history books going to say about the way we're running our country right now? They're going to look at all these things and go, how in the hell could they do that? And then they're probably going to be doing something else nefarious that they're not seeing for themselves because that's human nature. That's just, you know. It's like a yeah. process of elimination. These people are treated as other because they do not follow social conformity. They don't look a certain way. They don't adhere, you know, to the boundaries of our quote unquote norms. And so they are looked down upon. We look past them. We don't actually see them. You know, I live in an area of New York that hosts a lot of people that are a part of the search for change program which is supposed to help people with, you know, pre-existing mental health conditions or, you know, recovering from an addiction. Um, it's supposed to help facilitate education for them and, and, you know, just help them kind of feel better, which can in turn help you turn toward a more positive path, you know, maybe you return to education and maybe you do pursue something that you wanted to do in life. But the whole purpose of situations like that is to make people feel like they're wanted again, feel like they are a part of society again. And I think that's what's so important. You know, I've witnessed plenty of homeless people who, to be honest, looked a little scary and a little grungy and, you know, obviously just not well kept but I've heard conversations between police officers and these homeless people where this person is, you know, extremely articulate, definitely with it, you know, not like scum on the bottom of anybody's shoe. These are people that, you know, I like to think we're all one mistake away from being in this situation. We oh, have yeah. to remember that, you know, anybody who, who is going down that path you could be one or two steps away from finding yourself there. And how would you want to be treated? Oh, I know. And there's, I mean, now because of the housing market, people in Florida are living in their cars with families. These are people who have jobs, but can't find a place. Right. To They're I mean, doing it in New York too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. And I mean, the, uh, the, the idea that um, people, you know, we have this pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You got yourself there. And you, like you said, you have kids that they want to be a part of a community. Their families have abandoned them, showing them nothing but tough love, which isn't love at all. And they've abandoned them. And then kids in the streets doing drugs, they find a family within themselves. So those homeless communities become what they need because they're not family, getting anywhere yeah. else. So, so of course they're not going to, it's going to be hard to get better because getting better means leaving that family to a place that they don't feel loved to try to get help from someone who doesn't, they feel doesn't love them. So it's not an easy route. And um, that, but you know, when you said that the idea is that we have people with component of mental health problem or trauma and, and then addiction. So you can't treat the addiction and then put them back out on the streets and expect them not to no. relapse because Johan Hari put it really well in his book. He said, it, it's like a building's on fire. The smoke is the drug use. The fire is the problem causing the smoke and you're just blowing out the smoke. Really, you're just fanning the flames. The flames are going to keep burning. The smoke's going to keep coming back. You have to put that fire out. And that's what we have to do is treat the mental illness, treat what whatever the cause was that led to the addiction. Yeah, and they, and they don't do that because I don't even think schools nowadays even have any kind of social worker counselors in them anymore. You know, they strip them out of that. You know, up here in New York, we had a thousand, you know, tons of mental health communities, mental health hospitals, and New York decided to close them and they just kicked everybody out on the street. So, you know, it's just a cycle of not treating the cause of what, whether it even leads into addiction. I'm just talking about straight mental health, you know, because there's many people that have mental health illness that don't become addicted, mm -hmm. but why isn't mental health being treated? Why isn't there 
like, because let me tell you something. The counselor at my elementary school was the first person I ever told that I was abused. That started the cycle of getting the help that I needed and allowing myself eventually to tell the people that I was abused. Had that counselor not been there, the social worker or whatever, um, who knows where I would be today, you know? But they're not in the schools anymore, you know? So, like, forget about the addiction aspect of it. Why aren't there? You know how many children go to school that are abused, that are neglected, that are going to school hungry. Why aren't there counselors in there to help those kids with their mental health illnesses? Uh-oh, Chelsea, we lost Chelsea. We lost her. Yeah. I'm sure she'll pop right back yeah, in. Like, I, I don't understand why they're not in there. You know? I know. Well, we've really, we really massively defunded public schools and it's really sad. And, you know, I don't know how, how you feel. And this is very controversial. Um, Biden's $350 billion or whatever, $300 billion bailout for college uh, loan debt. And then I, I think there should be socialized college at some point, but we need to fix K through 12 before we worry about college educated people. K through 12, a lot of poor people, they're not going to go to college because they didn't have the proper K through 12. So it's, you're bailing out the people who had the right schools to get them to college. And yeah, I don't like that. I, I agree. I 100% agree. The, the, the funds should be started in kindergarten. They yeah. can talk about all these other things in the world in school nowadays, but they're yet, they're not talking about the important things, you know, and, and unfortunately ch children don't learn from consequences. So they need the education. Mm -hmm. That's when my professor said adolescence is the hardest because they have nothing to lose. They don't have a family. They don't have a job. They don't have cars. They don't have anything. So they're just with their whole attitude is fuck it. I'm going to do it anyway. Cause I don't have a consequence. You know, mm -hmm. you get somebody who's an alcoholic or an addict and loses his family, his job, that might be the push for him to be like, all right, this is my why I'm getting clean now, you know, but if they had the education starting in kindergarten and again, not just for alcoholism or addiction, but for mental health, you know, it would save so much. And like you said, they're not going to go to college. So why are they doing it then? That's the important K through 12. But they really just abandoned it. Some of the some of the real poor communities and the inner city communities have been so badly broken up. And really a lot of it is the war on drugs that broke it up. But um the the, the kids, they don't they have, they're living in neighborhoods that are high crime. There's lots of drugs there. There's um there's gonna be uh violence and when they go home, there might not be food in the cupboards. Um <laughs> And so that where they count on that food is in going to school and they might get one meal a day. And I think if we had money for after school programs where they could have a place, a safe place to go after school where they also fed another meal, that would be instrumental. And because, I mean, th this is when their brains are developing, their their social abilities are developing and they're not developing in the correct way in those circumstances. And it creates a very unfair life that they have. And then, and then when they end up in a world of crime, we say, well, that's your fault. You got yourself there, jail. Now criminal record, now you can't get a job. I mean, we've just created a system of perpetual fucking them over. And so we need to fix that. We need to put money there. That's what I want to see money go. I don't, you know, for college loan debt, that's, if we had the money, that's great. But I think until we fix K through 12, let's stop worrying about free college. I think ultimately that should be our goal. Ultimately we should have a, a system that has a free education all the way up and through so that we can be competitive in the world with technology and all this, but we got to fix our yeah. K through 12 first. Yeah. And I also, and, and getting, getting back to the poor neighborhoods and the drug invested, the inner cities, they took away the sports. So the kids, like not even after school activities, just bring sports back. So the kids have something to do after school. You can't afford, you know, like you, they, you can't take everything away from them because if a child has an opportunity to, to play a sport, male or female, pretty much chances they're going to stay on like 
a bit of a straight now because they're going to have a coach. They're going to have something to do. They're going to have something to look forward to. They're going to have an opportunity. And, but they stripped all that, like you said, defunded the schools and taking it all away from them, yeah. but not giving them anything back. So I didn't know they stripped the sports programs. Now, is that um, just in certain, certain schools that are, that are funded less? Cause where I live here in Florida, yeah. there's still sports happening. Yeah. Down South, there seems to be sports is everywhere up here. Uh, nothing. There's yeah. not even a basic, and I apologize for my technical difficulty just now. Um, there is not even a basic after school program where, you know, the kids can just congregate in the cafeteria until like maybe four thirty, five o'clock with the supervision of a teacher so that parents who are rushing from work don't have to, you know, go nuts. I mean, there's not even basics. And the program that existed during COVID where there were free lunches for everybody across the board has now been extinguished. So you are back to paying for school lunch. Um, you can apply for free or reduced cost meals, but you know, we're moving out of this pandemic full steam ahead. And we really didn't fix any of the problems that we saw during the entirety of the last two years that really needed, you know, we're just putting our finger in the hole and the whole dam is, is going to explode sooner or later across the board. Because now they're saying that we spent so much money during COVID that they don't have the money to put back into anything. So it's ridiculous. And it's not fair that kids go to school hungry or anything like that. Like of my course. kids never, we had to pay, you know, because the, the cutoff to get a free lunch is like, forget about it, you know, but yet yeah. everybody struggles, you know? So it's like, if you're in school, you need your brain because you, you know, I'm nutrition too. You need to have the inside covered you know, your brain needs a certain amount of fat, carbohydrates, protein, like you need that to be able to learn. Mm -hmm. So like the basic necessity, you're not even giving them. And as you can see, we could talk your ears off all day about myriad. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> every topic. <laughs> yeah. These, these topics are so sad because I, I just want my listeners, you know, really think to stop and really think about what we're talking about because this we talk you hear about this all the time and you're like yes this is a problem but you got to think that as we're talking there's a kid a bunch of kids all over the country who are hungry who can't focus on what they're learning because they haven't eaten and, and then they're scared when they get out of school because they don't know what kind of violence they're going to encounter or what their state of mind their parents are going to be in like there's all these things that are happening can you imagine a being a little kid and going through this and i mean i know some of like you have i have like but you go home and, and you're oh, oh dad's been drinking let's let me just try to avoid him best i can and if sometimes you can't i'm in trouble i don't know what i did that feeling is horrible and yeah. i remember going to a friend's house i thought i had it bad i went to his house and it was like his dad was a crazy maniac inside breaking stuff and i was like and when i saw that i was like so so there's a different level for every you know, but everybody internalizes it differently. But these things, the, the only thing we can do to help as a society is with schools. I think schools, after school programs, guidance counselors, try to make sure make sure these kids are getting the help. If they are in a bad home, we help fix it. But we don't have funds for any of this stuff. And in a country with as much money as our country has, where we have as many billionaires as we have, we spend billions of dollars on prisons that, that are making these problems worse. We, get, we can figure out where to find the money. We're just not interested in it is what it seems like. Yeah, 100%. and because you know what it is, and and unfortunately, people don't want to look at it because then they have to recognize that things are bad. And we've had this discussion, Charles, a, a thousand times where it's just some people just don't want to deal with it. And I always, when somebody says, "Well, what am I going to do?" and I'm like, "You," but if everybody says that, no, nothing's going to change. But if everybody starts doing something, that one leads into two, leads into twenty, leads into sixty, 
and change happens, you know? So until people realize, yeah, this is the stuff that's bad or not good. And maybe if I do start saying something or I still start, you know, rustling feathers at the schools, maybe somebody else will join me. Like, you know, and it starts happening, but people just, sometimes they're just like, no, I'm not like, I don't want to actually think that that stuff is happening or it doesn't, it's not in my family. So I don't really care, but that's not the way to be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, we, we have to start looking at ourselves as brothers and sisters all across the board and across the country. And right now we're so divided that it's not, it's, it's anybody that thinks differently means my enemy. We can disagree on things. We should not be enemies though. You know, that that's, we have no. to look at this country guys and people, I mean, right now there's so many other problems though, right? I mean, we're not going to get into them, but like gun control. And when you bring that up, it's, it's a tough one too, because it's hard like that one's a hard one for me to completely understand i'm anti-prohibition but should i should we prohibit guns then only the bad you know it's our country's so gun heavy it's like i don't know how you deal with that but when you mention it people get furious on either side and say well we got to talk about it we can't not talk about it people are being shot and i don't know what the, i don't know what the answer is but we should be talking about it productively and that goes with all other problems we need to be having a discussion and it needs to be a friendly discussion because we're not going to get anywhere by yelling at each other and that seems to be all we do is yell and neither side can agree whoever's got more seats in the senate or the house is going to pass legislation that's going to piss off the other side they're going to try to reverse it they're going to it's just it's just a, such a mess everything yeah hundred percent, hundred percent. Listen, I mean, my husband and I, uh, we just celebrated 13 years married and we've been together for almost 20 years and we rarely agree on politics and current events, but we just never stop talking. And, you know, this is how we maintain the foundation of our relationship. So if two married people who have literally lived in a house with each other for almost 20 years can work it out and have a happy relationship, that, <laughs> yeah, it's possible for sure. You just never stop talking. And believe me, my husband never stops talking. <laughs> you know, I, I find it like, you know, my views on this, Chelsea. I definitely have certain views, but I am always open to hear others because yeah, I might learn course. something. And people will say, well, I don't want to debate with her or this. So people like, I'm not going to like, you know, straight, like people that I know I'm not going to get, no, I want to, because I'm number one, not me. Number two, want to listen. And you might teach me something or you might show me something. I, my husband was so firm in his views and we used to have the most drag out fights. And I would be like, but you're not listening because you might hear something from somebody or me, but never the wife, you know, you might hear something that just be like, hmm, you know what? I've been looking at this so different my whole entire life, but I learned that from that person. Yeah. You know, you have to be open to it, you know? And like you said, you, there's no reason to be a division, you know, because you can, it's so like that now. People will not even talk to you if they know that you're for this or for that. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, and, what is the benefit of that? And this is the so much more than that. Exactly. And this is the problem I have with um, Republicans and Democrats is once you've put yourself a label on your beliefs, then you believe everything they believe. So if you go into an argument about whether, whether it's drugs, gun control, whatever the argument is, you, if you're a Democrat, you already have your opinions. You're not open yeah. to new opinions because I'm a Democrat. This is where we stand. Yeah. Well, how about we stand somewhere where we can reasonably talk? Because that's not ever going to work. And it is true. I'm like, let's look at the data. That's why I would say look at the data. 
and look at what other countries have done to fix problems that we haven't fixed and see how we compare to those countries and talk about it and see what we're willing to do as a country, as a nation with whatever the problem is and how we can get there. We see where we want to go. How do we start getting there instead of just going in and being like, nope, we're just going to do this the whole time and then nothing happens. And that's, that's yeah. And it's, that's, and, it, and it's pretty sad when you see other countries looking at America and saying, wow, we need to raise money for them. We need to, you know, help them. We need to do things for them because like, we're like the new third world country because of the way our politics and the, the division, you know, like a friend of mine who lives in Canada, a really close friend, sent me this thing that Germany's fundraising for us, for, for food insensitivities, because we don't have enough food to give to people. And, and that's I'm like, sad because we have the money. That's what's sad. We, we're just yeah, not spending you know, it on. You know, and one of my biggest reports, one of my biggest papers in school was on food insecurities. And it's out there, man. It's out there. People are suffering. You know, it's crazy, yeah. crazy. But I don't know. I hate to wrap this up right now because I'm, I'm really enjoying the yes. conversation. And I, feel like, I feel like we have more to talk about, but I, I have to get ready for work. I'm going to go play a show. And, um, and then tomorrow morning at 530 in the morning, we're flying out to Asheville. I'm excited about North Carolina, but not about the 530 flight. Nice. Uh, have a good gig. Be safe out there and have fun. Yes. Well, thank you so and much for doing this podcast. For sure. We'll do it again sometime. Okay. Yes. Thanks, Aaron. All right. Peace out. Bye. Bye. All right. Peace, Nicks. As always, if you like what we're doing on the Peace on Drugs podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Peace on Drugs podcast and go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe and subscribe to our newsletter. And as always, we're going to let Twiggy Branches take us on out. Out. out.
Yeah.